0: And so, for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just two dollars a month. That is an almost eighty percent discount. The clock is ticking on this; it disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to CanadaLand.com/Join, and thank you.
1: Hello, I'm Fatma Sayed sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Joining me is an editor at the Toronto Star, Evie Kwong. Hi Evie, welcome to Shortcuts. Hey, what's good? We're going to get into some fun topics. To start, (laughs) how are only people of color apparently worried about getting the COVID vaccine? And are journalists just exhausted and traumatized even more than they've ever been during this pandemic? We're gonna get into that, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. This episode of Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Mackenzie Brown, Robin Weeks, Ben Cullen, Elliot Fonarev, sorry, Elliot, Rebecca Rooney, Susan Carrigan, Kevin White, and Miles Forrester.
0: Hello, my name is Miles Forrester. I am a, a poet
1: living in Toronto, and I listen to Canada Land because it gives structure to my week, and I learn about things that... I probably won't hear anywhere else unless I go onto social media, which I really don't want to do. Vaccine hesitancy continues to be a problem, especially in the Black community. According to Statistics Canada, more than two-thirds of Black Canadians are reluctant to get a shot.
2: But money and goodwill can't overcome one of the biggest challenges,
1: administering the vaccines in Indigenous communities. Okay, Evie, we've been talking about vaccine hesitancy ever since we learned that vaccines need to be created to combat COVID-19. I was really interested to see a couple of comments this week on Twitter where I get most of my commentary. One was from Vicky Mochotma, the queen, Mm -hmm. who said that Canada is so unwilling to deal with white supremacy that there have been two white riots this past week at Grace Life in Alberta and in Montreal, And yet we're still just talking about vaccine hesitancy among racialized people. These riots were people not wearing masks, protesting for the end of lockdowns, you know, saying that the pandemic isn't real. But most of the headlines when you Google vaccine hesitancy was about those among racialized communities. The other person who caught my attention on this topic is Pia Charupadai, who said that we really need to stop racializing the conversation around vaccine hesitancy. She says there's anti-vaxxers in the white population, and she was really tired of every story being about people of color when it came to taking the vaccine. There's a larger question about the mainstream narrative and and what it means for us to exclude white people from vaccine hesitancy. Evie, you did an amazing project. You literally got people and experts who have taken the vaccine or who wanted people to take the vaccine to speak in their own language and tell the audience why they should take the vaccine. Tell me why that was important for you. And, and what was the thinking
2: behind putting that together? So the thing behind putting that together, uh, it was important to get a neighborhood like I'll, I'll call it like that or your family friend or your daughter or someone you trust to kind of tell you in their language, you know, being representative, like when you see something, you can believe it. So I'll give an example. Some people we got there were from the Cantonese population, like in China, in the Chinese Canadian population in Canada. And it's like having that person advocate for you is going to do so much more than perhaps, you know, even government officials. The thing about the Vaccine Hesitancy Project I put together with people in different languages that represent different groups, whether they were Black or Indigenous or other people of colour, was all about getting a friend or someone to give you a real account of why they took it it obviously does help with you know dispelling people who might be a little bit nervous you know they have they're on the fence or wondering you know how does it feel right after how does it work so that was kind of the whole approach when we talk about those comments that Vicky and Pia made which i think are super valid because it seems as if the conversation and data and stories are like, well, guess what? The Chinese Canadian population is scared to get the vaccine, you know, or whatever, whatever. I get that. I think that's really annoying. Um, I think the project that we did and the stuff that I'm doing going forward is a solution based thing, not saying that there isn't vaccine hesitancy in our communities. There really is like go on one WhatsApp group chat in my Chinese family freaking group. And it's just crazy rumors, like crazy amounts of things that needs to be addressed. That goes with a whole situation of not having enough media, have no nowhere to access news, a distrust in systems. And when it comes to Black and Indigenous groups, it's way more historical. Whereas it's true, we're having crazy you know, white alt-right riots right in Canada that is getting Fox News attention, that is being treated like it's a weird phenomenon, which it isn't, right? <laughs> it's like we know this happens in on Facebook groups, we know this happens in other churches and smaller scales. Like we know of big ones right now, that Alberta one. But it's like that is an issue. That should have the same amount of criticism. I think the thing that we're exhausted by as people of color and racialized people is that, yes, vaccine hesitancy is a thing. We know, and we're going to do our best to get our information out there with a solution-based Thing. Like, get someone to tell you what it was like. Okay, that's a solution. It's not going to be the be-all, end-all. But don't just say, oh, you know, Black and Indigenous people, vaccine hesitancy. This is the numbers. This is the data. This is what we did. Okay, data is important, but do something about it, right? Have a solution. Don't, don't just, like, report the fact that these marginalized communities uh, that are suffering, obviously, the most from covid uh, aren't doing anything. It's not about that. We have never had a federal or a government response to really address that even from the beginning.
1: I, I love how nuanced your rant was because it's true. Like it, there are various different structural and institutional problems at play when it comes to, you know, the concept of vaccine hesitancy. Evie, what do you say to the people who think that a story like yours, where you actually go and get people to speak in their own language about why anyone should get the vaccine might be feeding into this narrative that it is just among racial groups that
2: vaccine hesitancy exists. I think that would be an odd way to see it, you know, I, and it's okay. I get people have their opinions. But the thing is, when I created this, you know, the videos themselves have the people speaking about why they would be, you know, hesitant, right? Like the first video I put up was from um, an Indigenous uh, VP of Reconciliation at Algonquin College. He said, you know, the decision was really difficult, seeing as our history has whatever. I don't even shy away from that. I didn't want to cut the part. It wasn't like an all let's all get the vaccine campaign. It wasn't campaign. It was talking to real people about the real experience, whether they felt feverish after, whether they did, it was an observational piece. And the reason why we translate it all in English is because A, we know that media doesn't cover a lot of these populations. So I want them to understand what the problems are. You know, between me as a, in the Chinese community, it's a way different situation of worry than it is for indigenous people or black people. There needs to be a targeted approach to each of these communities. I was speaking with an Indigenous doctor, Lisa Richardson, who was actually up north doing these really successful Indigenous vaccination clinics. And, you know, the whole thing is not about persuasion. It's about agency, you know. So if the person goes there, there's elders there. If you're in line and you're like, oh, my God, I feel so much regret. There are people there to help you. And if you want to leave that day and come back tomorrow, they allow that. That's what it was about, the agency. So when I was doing this piece, it was not about pushing this on, you know, and being like, it's all racialized, people. It's just to show Uh, sorry, I'm a mostly white mainstream media audience, you know, the lived experience of these people and why there's a situation with that. Plus in the piece, there was also, you know, people from Italian and Portuguese backgrounds that also face this too. Like we don't talk about that. They are, you know, they're white, but they also have their own, you know, situations where they aren't getting enough information. Their grandmas can't understand that. So it was not just selectively for uh, racialized groups. I think it's still important to address each of them in their own specific way and giving them each as much weight as another because they're all really different. And now let's just talk about the conspiracy theorists because to be honest, most of them are probably white. The people who are spreading these rumors, we have elected leaders like roman barber like you know baber whatever his name is like basically saying oh lockdown's done we don't need the lockdown like what are you talking about i don't understand or like people you know at the sun being like doctatorship as a front page what does that say about you know the actual audience and the weight that they carry within this mostly white readership i'm not going to say it's all white but having collected data about who is vaccine hesitant just by race is completely incorrect to me there's also religious things there's also conspiracy theorists A lot of the wellness naturopath people who are white, you know, a lot of them are the same people saying, I'm anti-vax or I'm on the fence or I'm vaccine hesitant. Where's the poll for those people? Like the wellness people. And we haven't even gotten the language to like be like, there's certain groups of people like that are, you know, from the white population that are vaccine hesitant or anti-vaxxers. Even in America, they got NASCAR drivers, right? And they were like, okay, if we can get the NASCAR drivers who are seen as superheroes to these people basically say hey i got the vaccine here's a video like wouldn't that help i think that would help a lot i think there's a whole strategy behind that that we haven't thought about and i feel like we are uh all together need to cover the other part more the conspiracy theorists the wellness people yep. without giving them light and pride and like this is their right like this is not what we're talking about we're talking about the same type of things these people aren't getting the vaccine
1: it's not a racialized problem there is white vax resistors <laughs> and and the problem is is that every time there is a, a anti-vaxxer movement or protest or event of some kind. We call it a manifestation of a conspiracy or we call the people there conspiracy theorists. We don't call them vaccine-hesitant folks who need to be spoken
2: to in a constructive way and educated and informed. You know, that Toronto Sun front page dictatorship could be told by, in a workplace, by someone who reads it, a white person, to a Chinese colleague. Their Chinese colleague comes home, goes on WhatsApp, said, I heard, like, from the official mainstream newspaper, blah, blah, blah. So that's how it really rolls down. So let's not talk about just that.
1: No, you're right, because I've been seeing the same thing circle around in, in like, WhatsApp groups as well, where people will cite, like, all kinds of just, like, headlines where they'll see, like, oh, uh, you know, lately it's been a lot of, like, oh, AstraZeneca causes butt clots. I'm not going to get the vaccine. And then you have to, like, break it down and explain it to them. And then they still don't understand. And then you're left, like, saying, what words could I possibly use? Yeah. I'm not a medical expert. I'm just a journalist. I just read read things. But what words do I even use to explain to this person who has so many fears across history? and, And this is, again, across communities. People have seen medical uh, experiences go wrong. And when you have something as new as the vaccine, it scares them. And And there's a history of that. You know, you mentioned indigenous communities. Indigenous communities in Canada have largely been subjected to medical experimentations that have gone wrong and that have left generations skeptical of government medical assistance. Black people in America have, have suffered under the same kind of experimentation that has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. There is an inherent skepticism in all kinds of communities. But at the same time, I agree with you. You know, if you're in Calgary, talk to Calgarians. In the way that they would understand,
2: like pastors, get the pastors out there.
1: Yeah, if my imam can stand and like in the virtual like sermon and say like, "Hey, you all should get the vaccine. It's fine. I got the vaccine. Don't worry. God says you need to get a cure. Why can't a pastor in Calgary do that and address vaccine hesitancy? And why can't we, as a government and as a society, recruit those leaders that people listen to way more than you and me and get them to address it among their community? Why does it just have to be imams and you know the faith? leaders and temples yep. and stuff it should also be pastors and church leaders and country singers in Canada
2: yeah yeah like that would be the way and unfortunately like also as journalists who are journalists of color also women when people the moment they see our face or even you know the thing we're sharing they don't read the story you know I'm talking about certain populations like here they go again talking about the same racialized issue blah 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 what and then it gives us weird narrative if you don't read it and really understand it that oh, it's all the racialized people's fault. Like, they won't get the vaccine. That is not what we're saying, right? Like, that is not at all. It's just that from the get, the government has never had, like, a, like... For some reason, I really think that they just went, okay, bought all the vaccines, supply, supply, supply. They didn't even put the human element in it being like, okay, this vaccine was developed in less than a year. Do you think people would get it and think they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, like for sure. Like, why wasn't that like one of the second first second things that you address, right? Like knowing that you have a population that is anti-vax, that population uh, perhaps in Alberta, which we're seeing now, that is all right, that kind of blended together, you know, that has a distrust in systems as well, but in a different way. And right now we have to just see them as one, two weird instances or like phenomena. And it's not that they happen all the time. Just go to one Facebook group. They don't know how to address these inequities, A, like they never have. And also, B, like we need to figure out how to not glorify those white supremacist movements or the anti-vax or the lockdown thing.
1: More than that, we need to talk to them, right? I I think it's very easy to, I think it actually is a form of othering if we just celebrate, like, racialized communities and how they're combating vaccine hesitancy without recognizing that there is a huge community that is largely white that isn't doing anything about this. That, you know, we're actively letting them go to the streets without masks and not get the vaccine and not care about the lockdown and not care about the pandemic. Like, by implicitly not recognizing recognizing how dangerous that is and then celebrating how well like Thorncliffe did by putting up a pop-up tent and literally vaccinating people across the street and you know inspiring them by numbers like if you see like a neighbor getting a vaccine wouldn't you get the vaccine why isn't that happening in predominantly white communities and why aren't we calling it out so you know honestly this is me calling it out seriously I love that all the racialized communities are combating vaccine hesitancy I know so many brown folks young brown folks and, and young Asian folks across Canada who have become vaccine doulas and in spreading vaccine information we have like so many twitter accounts that are doing this on the count mostly run by people of color but i am legitimately on this podcast calling out all the white communities that are not even addressing it and asking journalists to go in there and be like hey what's wrong? What's the problem here? (laughs) Because there's people of color and new immigrants who don't even have status who are trying to get the vaccine. And here you are, generations of Canadians who
2: aren't even addressing it. For sure. And I think that is so important. So get that pastor up there. Get that country music star. This is really sad. I can't think of a single Canadian country singer.
1: I don't listen to that uh, (laughs) genre. So I can't speak to that. Shania Twain. Can we just get Shania Twain to do a song about vaccine? Does she count? She might be like... Like too
2: progressive for some people.
1: <laughs> Evie, on this show, we like to duly note news that might have gone overlooked. What do you want to duly note this week?
2: What I want to duly note is the further investigation at the Grassy Narrows site. The star did a further investigation. Sheila Wang, she's actually uh, from yorkregion.com and also helping us at Tour Star. But it was about basically how Mine contracts have been going up, have been surging even throughout the pandemic. You know, it's like the first step for mining prospectors to maybe be able to get a sort of deal with the province. Right. And so that's happening on Grassy Narrows land where we have not even excavated after, you know, years of this investigation and promises of excavating the alleged mercury dump sites, which the like the government has admitted saying, you know, there were there was mercury found in the soil this is human rights. Like we're talking about drinking water, like eating fish, eating what's on their land. And that has already plagued them in terms of tremors and other issues and dying young, even, you know, when we talk to those people and it's like in a world when it wasn't so busy that people actually recognizing that, even in a damn pandemic. This is not obviously, I don't see mining contracts as a priority. Maybe I don't know anything and I don't know anything about money, but like these people need to figure out why their water has been messed and, you know, feeling like they've been poisoned by mercury. It's
1: such an awful story. And I I read that it's been 50 years since, you know, it was first exposed that mercury was being poured into the river uh, at Grassy Narrows. And it's been 6 years since a worker confessed to dumping mercury in that land and nothing has been done. So, definitely definitely duly noted and a must-read story. Please find the capacity to care.
2: <laughs> it's hard.
1: I have a completely like different and stupid story to duly note, but it is it is a very Fatima story. I want to highlight a story that Vice got about how the Canadian military is being notified when pilots spot UFOs in Canadian airspace. Woo! Of all the things that I thought would happen this year, that's not information I thought would ever be revealed. That's actually sick. I love it. I would actually like to know how many UFOs we've seen. The Vice Report said that they've seen one over northern Manitoba that looked like an inexplicable bright light before the sunrise on january 6 2019 wow so i would like to know how many ufos we've seen where they're at where they're going (laughs) whether we've made contact you know i need way more information so if you work in the canadian military and you're tracking ufos hit me up dm me please will the
2: aliens save us they might save us i
1: feel like after everything we've gone through this past year aliens might be our only hope duly noted
0: This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. at betterhelp.com slash Canadaland. That's betterhelp.com E L P dot slash Canadaland.
1: Evie, are you tired? Hell yeah. <laughs> So. I am so tired. And uh, I was struck by this piece by Erica Lenti in Macleans This Week, where she highlighted how her and her partner both work in journalism and have been working in a small apartment, as is the case with many people in Toronto. Yeah. And she talks about how she failed spectacularly at her therapist's suggestion to not talk about COVID-19 after 8 p.m., She started seeing her therapist when the pandemic first started, and uh, it's sort of been a struggle ever since, according to the story. The part that got to me is she she writes and I'm quoting our baseline of anxiety has risen because as journalists, we've seen some of the worst of humanity on an intimate level. We can't unsee it. Rather, we have to keep facing it even when this pandemic ends. Evie, how are you feeling? How are you coping? Because this mcclain's story and the twitter discourse and just the general discourse around it just tapped into some emotion that we're all feeling and not talking about
2: yeah i mean you Fatima, you're definitely i can only imagine how exhausted you are i'm gonna just say i'm also hella exhausted and to be honest my partner is an icu nurse so we are feeling the burnout you know we are talking about the individual cases obviously not the names or the ages or whatever but he comes home gets on cod. Call of Duty and just yells. And I'm like, go for it while I'm working in the meeting. Because I'm like, we live in a one bedroom condo, right? And this is a fake one bedroom. And I'm not going to even be mad about it. It is what it is. Because, you know, everything's so expensive. I at least have a place to stay. But it's like a fake glass door with a bedroom. So right now I'm recording. He just came off an overnight shift. He's trying to sleep. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I have to do this, right? Like, I, I have meetings after this, too. So I'm really happy about how we've been okay. Like I actually feel really great, but it's like, yes, it's like I'm out here being like numbers. It's really annoying, like more like shooting news, which is horrible, you know, just even this week, like it, it, I can't even keep up. There's so much stuff and I ha- I feel like an, uh, like I have to keep up. I feel like I do. Um, whereas I also am lucky to have a therapist and to be able to, they, they don't give me the strict rule. Don't talk after eight. I don't think that's possible for me. It's really unfortunate, but like my kitchen table is my work desk, right? everything that I write and think about, about COVID, about people, the deaths, about all that stuff is done where I'm going to eat dinner. And it always connects me back to that. The best thing I've been able to kind of do is go for a long ass walk. Like, one of those people. I'm a walker now. You know, I count my steps because I have nothing else to do and I need to take my mind off stuff. But it doesn't mean that I'm on my walk. I'm not checking in on my partner being like, yo, are you okay in the ICU? Are you okay?" Or it doesn't mean I'm not looking at the latest news on Twitter. I really still am. Unfortunately, it's like kind of like I can't stop and it's not it's such an unhealthy addiction. So what she's writing about being able to stop at eight, I'm like, that is not possible for me. Like it's only possible if I maybe. I drink. (laughs) Sorry. I take my weed pills. Like, it is what it is. I'm going to tell you what I do to really cope. And at the end of the day, it's still really hard. I try my best, but I have not figured it out. So, Fadma, if you have ideas. I mean... I don't know. I'm lucky if I have one hour in the day
1: where my brain can (laughs) actually shut the news out. Like that to me is a good day. If I can find one hour in the evening where I'm not thinking about the news, I'm not thinking about COVID, I'm watching something stupid or I'm listening to something fun or I'm talking to a friend and there's no COVID in that conversation. That to me is a good day at present. I remember last year when the pandemic started, I I started taking screenshots of everything that was happening because I'm like, I feel like I need to record this and somehow and I'm too tired to like. Like write yeah. it all down or create like a google doc or you know for my thoughts in some way so I just started taking screenshots and it was just it's so bad it was like Australian wildfires yeah. um pandemic uh literally it's inescapable. yeah. And as a, as someone whose job, like both of our jobs is to relay information yep. about what's happening in the world, there is too much happening in the world. Like my brain goes from pandemic crisis to climate crisis to housing crisis yeah. to financial crisis and then like back and then racism and there's police brutality and there's grassy narrows and I'm just like, oh, make it stop. Please make it stop. And it doesn't stop. Like I just wish as a world we could collectively take a day off or a week off even where it's like nothing's gonna happen today we're all just gonna eat cake and you know have ice cream and go for nice like moments on the lake or something yeah it's a
2: lot it's a lot
1: (laughs) but but for for listeners who don't believe you and ike evie there is study to back up just how much journalists are struggling in july 2020 reuters did a survey of journalists uh this study was cited by erica lenti as well and it found that around 70% of journalists are suffering from some level of psychological distress. They found that journalists reporting on COVID showed signs of anxiety and depression. And even experienced reporters who work for large, well-funded media organizations were struggling to cope with all the demands of reporting on the pandemic. Like, I don't know if, you know, for those of you who follow the news closely, news breaks at like odd times, like 9 p.m. And journalists are on it. And I'm like,
2: how are you guys doing this? I'm not trying to be lame AF, but honestly, like, I think you're part of that too. Like, you know, you say 9pm, but sometimes I see you breaking news that time. I'm not trying to be (laughs) lame, but like, really, I think we really, we really care. Like, the thing is, we know how inaccessible, especially, you know, for our communities, information is, I'm just like, how can I go to bed, you know, if I don't even just say this one damn thing? If the M5V people yesterday were able to sign up and suddenly at 9pm, oh, sorry, you can't. How, How am I gonna go to bed being like, oh yeah you guys can't actually anymore without even saying that like I feel like a I feel like a horrible (laughs) person and that that's bad right because it's like you're bringing in your whole life in it and I think that's a that's the thing that will always go through a lot of journalists will feel that way for sure and I think obviously have your own space and all that wellness stuff of course but even like you know you're supposed to be in a time of celebration it's Ramadan you know like what the hell like you're trying to celebrate you're trying to have a great time it's like it's impossible so like I'm sorry, you can only have one duly noted thing, but there's amazing stories about Ramadan that are happening right now that are out there. But unfortunately, there's so much other stuff that piles on. Yes, I am a journalist that has depression and anxiety more so after this, for sure. Like I have definitely aged. My vision is terrible. I don't know what the hell happened. I'm like, I need to get an eye test, but is it safe? And like my, you know, my brain is just rattling on and on just constant. And then you know the best things actually the best remedies that make me feel human are my non-journalist friends which I love to the damn core cuz I'm like did you know what happened today it was like this 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 and like we should care about this and they're like shut the fuck up like they're like be <laughs> quiet
1: I have friends who just send me animal videos on Instagram, and honestly, bless yeah. them because I need that content so much in my life. Like, I just need stupid content that has nothing to do with the news. Yes. Because, I, like, I don't know about you, but I feel like, and and again, the Reuters study proved this that we're working just all the time. Yeah. Even though we're at home, it's like no longer like sh- like nine to five. We're not logging off. We're always on. And and I like it's the third day of Ramadan. Like, I wake up at like four yeah. or four thirty a.m. to eat. Yeah. Right. I will check Twitter before going to sleep. And I I realized I was doing this today and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I have to not check Twitter at 5 a.m. to make sure that I didn't miss anything while I was sleeping. And then I think what also makes it worse is that there's still people who don't believe media, right? Like we were talking about vaccine hesitancy today. There's people who think that we're lying to them, like that media is, you know, fake news and whatever. And I was really struck when um, Amber Brecken, who's this Edmonton-based photojournalist, she was... Uh, retweeting a conversation with the photojournalist of the year assigned by News Photographers Association of Canada. His name is Darren Calabrese, and he's based in Halifax. And he admitted on an Instagram live conversation that he is not doing well, just explicitly. He said that he was honored to have been named Canada's photojournalist of the year, but he said it's been the hardest professional and personal year of his life. And he said he didn't know if he'll have a career at the end of it. He won in part for photographing the Nova Scotia shooting that happened last yeah. year. And and he described it as going out on the highway, chasing after a murderer, dressed as an RCMP, all on his own. His wife was crying in the kitchen. He was scared, but he felt that financially he had to do it. Yeah. He had to go get this photo. And it was his responsibility to cover this huge moment in his region. Amber Brecken also tweeted him saying that he got a three hundred and fifty dollar day rate for twelve hours and twenty crime scenes, which is nuts. I don't know where journalism's going. I just know we're all really tired, and I'm desperately hoping we survive this.
2: No, I I agree. And that whole people not believe believing we're part of a bigger narrative, whether or not you trust mainstream media like you know it, it is hard and the thing is obviously there's different types within it i've always grown up as a person who trusts people over the organizations right and it's not i'm not just talking about me i'm talking about almost everything right like there's people that i you know i wish there was a page where i could subscribe to Fadmusta. musta that's it you know like I, whatever <laughs> you know without without any strings attached to anything else and i think To be honest, in conversations, you know, on the audience team, I also do a lot of listening about what people want to see. And for the younger generation and millennials, like they don't trust a whole organization, which I think is fair because they grew up in a situation where they're like seeing, I mean, live time right now, like governments kind of fail them. There might be certain people they really like there that advocate for what they like, but they don't just trust. They're not like, I'm a left, I'm a right. They're just like, I'm a person. Uh, I trust who I trust and I'm whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really how in the way I see it is actually kind of uh, it's, it's a cool thing because I think people trust people more, right? Like you trust the fact that I'm me. And so that is the only way I think they yeah. can see you separate, uh, you know, like your fake news, like you just work with the government or whoever, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, when I hear that, I'm like, damn, man, I'm not doing my job
1: right. Evie, you're turning out content. You're editing opinion columns from people of color who don't often get a chance to be in Canada's largest uh Paper, you're creating TikToks, you're doing socials for Toronto Star. Like, it's a lot on your plate. And then there are so many people who I've seen attack you for being fake news as yeah. well. And I'm just like, seriously, do you not see the amount of work she's putting out to try and communicate with everyone in ways they don't understand? Oh, I
2: mean, we already know, like, every time I put up a TikTok, like, the man who has used dog shampoo, like, I already called it out. I don't really care. Like, he's like, how is this real news? And I'm like, come on, like, really? Come on, find something else. Like, you know what? Maybe it's not for you because, like, you know, you're used to seeing in a certain way. But this is changing if you really want to keep up with the future. And to be honest, like, yes, there's obviously, you know, you can't just paint a whole generation as someone who's great. But the activity of gen z and like being so action oriented you know they led protests and when i was thinking back when i was in high school i was like what the fuck was i doing i was being a dumbass like not caring well that's the thing there's the
1: world has changed right there's so much more to care about and just just like I feel bad some days that I you know like the other day I was thinking I was reading something on the Rohingya refugees and I was like oh my god I haven't shared this in a long time but if I share this will anyone even care yeah. like do they realize that this is still happening and it's just like a moment in my head where I'm just like oh my god I need someone to care about this but I don't think anyone has the capacity to care about this but I care about it but I'm also tired and it's
2: just like an inferno as you said it's crazy at the end of the day you're still a person like that's like I'm not a robot, I'm not going to not cry and feel sad or feel incredible anger. And so I think what the younger generations really want is that transparency. You know, that's what I've always tried to do with the star. When I picked it up, it wasn't like that on socials. But it's like, nowadays, we interact when we can with our other reporters with through gifts like no matter how weird that is I want you to know there's a human behind this right like I want you Mm to know I'm making intentional decisions when I social things right and we we get some stuff wrong and our team is pretty big so we never know but it's like like at the end of the day being real knowing that things are exhausting that's when people are like I can relate to this person because I'm also exhausted like of course like don't it doesn't have to be such a rigid thing and you know you know you're not going on the live to like you know talk shit about the workplace you're just like yo I'm so tired and I think if you just (laughs) say that people would trust the news more I don't know what it is it's like it doesn't need to be a silent place.
1: I think that my message to to people who aren't journalists who might be listening to this is just just be nice to them because they're dealing with a lot. Not only are they reporting on every shitty, crazy, complicated, confusing thing that's happening in the past year and a half or whatever, but they're also dealing with institutions that aren't exactly being accessible with their information. They're yeah. they're trying to disseminate information to so many different kinds of communities to try and get important information. It's a public service and they're doing it all for at home with family members who are also struggling with their own problems, with their own experiences with COVID-19 and racism and whatever else is going on in, in the world. And yeah, we're all tired, but we found
2: time to do this podcast. So you're welcome. <laughs> Exactly. You're welcome. No, I'm really happy. I got to talk. It takes me out of like this makes me feel human it takes me out of my element. Right. Like, I mean, I'm in my element, but I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm still heavy, like the weird person who has emotions. So thanks, guys. It was cathartic.
1: Okay, well, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email Jesse about it at jesse at canadaland.com. He reads everything you send him. I'm Fatma Sayyid. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayyid. Canada Land's on Twitter at Canada Land. Evie, where can people find you? Um, at Evie Stadium on everything. I keep it easy. our website is candleland.com this episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kevin Sexton our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt our theme music is by so called syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria visit them online at CFUV.ca if you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to candleland.com forward slash join